You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit jointheventure.com or facebook.com slash jointheventure. We hope you enjoy. We're in this series right now called The Untold Stories of Christmas, and our goal over the, the month of December is just to take a look at the Christmas story and while a lot was going on on the surface, you know, we talk about the nativity, and you've got baby Jesus, and, and you've got Mary and Joseph, and you've got people coming to see them at a manger, and, and there's things going on on the surface. I think that we can peel back the visual layer and, and what's happening on the surface and see so many other things that God is accomplishing through this Christmas story. And last week we talked about uh, Christmas, the untold story, as a, a war story. Remember that? We delved into D-Day and we kind of looked at some of the comparisons between the idea that uh, basically our world has been held under siege by this evil, but God comes in uh, and the spiritual war ensues and that began on spiritual D-Day, Christmas. And, and this week is no different. We're going to take a look at a different, uh, a different angle, a different level of the, of the Christmas story. When you look beyond what's happening on the visual spectrum, What's going on behind the scenes and what is in the mind and the heart of God? And to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag, uh, this week the untold story of Christmas is that Christmas is a political story. It's a political story. In fact, there's a lot of different directions I could take that. I, I'm not going to go the actual political route where we talk about uh, the Roman Empire and what was happening between the conflict between the Jews and the Romans at that time period. That, that would be a whole other fascinating way to, to take it. Uh, but let's talk about politics for a second. Like I think uh, most of us know the idea of politics. Uh, if you're like me, when you hear the word politics, you kind of get an uneasy settle in your stomach, and you're like, uh. I, I think, uh, I, I believe that you can take most words and you can break them down to their root components and you can understand what they're all about. Uh, same thing's true with, with politics. Maybe you've, you've heard this about politics. The, the root word of poly is actually from two words, poly and ticks. Poly meaning uh, many, multiple, and ticks meaning blood-sucking blood creatures. Um, you know, so politics, right? And, you know, the jokes, the jokes go on and on. I'll try this one, see if it hits. I got, I got good news and I got bad news. Okay, the, the good news is there was a whole van full of politicians and they, they drove into the river and it was just terrible. That was, that was the bad news. Oh, that was the good news. You want to know what the bad news is? There was some empty seats on the van. We didn't get them all. So, eh, lame, right? Um, I grew up going to church where it was the preacher's job to tell the worst jokes ever. Um, and so I was just like, I'm never going to do that. But uh, sometimes you got to just have a throwback. But we all get politics. Uh, politics, not in the sense of, uh, of Republican and Democrat and Libertarian and, and, and midterm elections and all that kind of stuff. That's not politics as we're speaking of them today. Politics is more along the lines of who gets the privilege? Who gets the prestige? Uh, and I think that uh, most of us have learned about politics just through life. I, I learned about politics early in life. I played uh, in Little League Baseball. And... Um, I wasn't the best player on the team, admittedly. I'll say I was not the best player on the team, but I know that I wasn't the worst. I was at least the second worst player on the team, okay, at least. But this other kid, like he, poor guy, like we're still friends, and you know, I, I, I follow him on Facebook every now and then, so, but the poor guy, like he could barely tie his shoes, okay? He shouldn't be like starting on the baseball team, but he started over me in the outfield, which obviously you guys who are baseball experts, you know that in Little League, that's where you put all the best players, like the farthest from the action. And so he's out there, and every game he started above me. I want to give you one guess as to why he started above me. Yes, guess who the coach was? His daddy. And he got to start every time to the point where my dad was like, my, my dad was never a confrontational guy. If you know my dad, he's like the biggest peacemaker in the world. But one day he went to coach, like, coach, look, man, for real, um, 
it's like halfway through the season. I mean, is there anybody that Chris could play for? But I guess to, to my credit, I've said it before, I did learn to juggle that year. I sat on the bench and I learned to juggle, so it wasn't all a loss. But that's politics, right? I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. That's politics. Many uh, experts, sociologists have broken down politics. They say that it's about the three Ps, the distribution of power, position, and prestige. Think about that, the distribution of power, position, and prestige. That's, that's politics. Other people would add the fourth P, uh, possessions. It's the distribution of possessions. It's the golden rule, right? He who has the gold makes the rules. That's, that's, the, that's politics. That's politics. And we talk about it tongue-in-cheek, but it's a real thing. It's something that actually affects us day to day. And, and here's where politics takes a turn for us today as we talk about Christmas and the untold story of Christmas. What are the politics of God. Sometimes we get stuck in a mindset of treating faith like politics. Like if I could just know the right people, be in the right place at the right time, do the right things, and cast myself in a good light, God will be good with me. Is that not politics? God, I just want to, I want to look good before you. If you've come here long, you know that that's not at all what we would teach here that it's so much more than what you can do. In fact, there's no amount of good you can do to make God go, finally, you've done it all. Your checklist is complete. God does so much of the heavy lifting there for us, but what we learn through the Christmas story is a pretty simple thing about God's politics, is that God's politics are not our politics. In fact, they're completely upside down from the way we would do things. What I want to do is take a look at just two little, uh, little corners of the Christmas story and unload some of the politics of God that we see there. So if you've got a Bible today, we're going to be in the book of Luke a little bit today. And if you, if you don't have a Bible, we give them away for free, especially if you're a guest today, if you've never heard this. Please take a Bible with you today. We've got them scattered around some, some of the seats underneath, and there's more in the back by the coffee. Speak to one of the volunteers back there. They'll definitely get you a free Bible. We just want to make sure everyone has a readable Bible. Also, the verses I'm going to be reading are going to be behind me on the screen. But we want to take a look today. In Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to start, in verse 28 is where we're going to start. But we're going to take a look today at the story of the mother of Jesus, Mary. Mary. Mary's a very prominent figure in the story of Christmas. In fact, many of you may have been raised in a Catholic home, and you might have actually seen the story of raising Mary and her prominence uh, overall kind of be elevated in a lot of different ways. We're not going to get into any of that today. But it's easy to see how when we look at the story of Christmas and we picture the person of Mary, it's easy to forget her humble beginnings. You know Mary? Very young girl. We, we don't know how young she was, but we can assume she was probably around 14 years old, give or take a year or two, more or less. She's a very young girl, and she's, uh, she'd been engaged to this guy named Joseph, who was a carpenter. Just real quick thing about carpenters in that time period. I mean, they weren't prominent people. They weren't, you know, running for public office. They didn't have a lot of uh, opinion weight. And they, just, they were good guys. This guy was, a, was an average but good man, but not prominent. Mary was pretty much destined to do what thousands and thousands of Middle Eastern girls have done through history, which is marry, have children, keep house, and then fade into history, not be remembered. That, that's pretty much how Mary was set up. Jewish society was a very male-centric society. In fact, I would even call it very chauvinistic, which is an added layer of the politics that are happening here because Mary was a nobody. 
And what I want to do is take a little look at what happens to Mary in the Christmas story and learn a little bit about the politics of God. His politics are not like ours. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. Uh, just for those of you who might not know much about the book of Luke, it's one of the first four books of the New Testament. There are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four books are all uh, tellings of the life and teachings of Jesus. Very cool if you're just getting into Christianity and trying to learn some things. The book of Luke is a great place to get a big full picture of Jesus' life. We're going to start at Luke chapter 1 and verse 28. And this is Mary's story. It says, an angel went to her, to Mary. And the angel said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled by these words. And she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will be with child. You're going to give birth to a son. And you're going to give him the name Jesus. He will be, a great, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Just a quick note on the, the position of Jesus there. To receive the throne of his father David and to reign forever. That's an amazing position he's being called to. And yet we got Mary, who is this nobody girl in the Middle East. And then she closes with this. She said, very practical question she has here. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? I wish we spent another half an hour just talking about that one sentence, the miracle of Christmas that God causes conception and birth. But let's continue to look at Mary. See, God could have brought a son into the world any way he wanted to. He could have gone to a king or an emperor and come into the world as a son of a king or an emperor so that immediately he'd be a prince and he would inherit a kingdom or an empire. He could have at least come into a, a nice, uh, you know, middle-class family in the suburbs with like a nice SUV and like a place in the you know, city council. I don't know, it could have been something like that, but no, nothing like that. When God chooses to make himself man and come to earth, who does he choose? He goes first to Mary, a girl of no position, no influence. And I think we can learn something about the politics of God here. They're a little upside down based on our standards. Even the place where the baby was born. Bethlehem, you know that part? Bethlehem, it's not a prestigious place. It's about as prestigious and powerful as... Um, I don't know, Bergal. You know Bergal? Of the, some of you guys from Bergal, you drove in here from Castlehane. No, look, no, uh, no offense meant to any Bergalians or Castlehanians, but Raleigh's not calling you guys every time they make a decision, are they? Right? Not a lot of power, not a lot of prestige. Bethlehem's that same way. Kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And all of this is interesting, but what I love is it's not lost on Mary. Mary recognizes the position that she's in. We're going to fast forward to verse uh, 47, 46. And this is what Mary says. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Listen to this. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Let's skip on to verse 50. Look what else she says. She says, his mercy extends to all who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. But... He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He's brought down the rulers from their thrones and he's lifted up the humble. I just want to take a note here. This does not uh, mean that someone is automatically more noble or more qualified to be used by God if they're poor or if they're from the middle of nowhere. Like, that's not what this is about. 
But what it just teaches, in fact, throughout the history of the church, you see that God does use prominent people, people of position, people of power, people of, of possession. He uses all of us for the giftedness that we do have. But what it does teach us is that the politics of God is completely upside down from what we're typically used to. God is God, and the things that impress us do not impress him. Last summer, I got to go to the Biltmore Estate with my family, and it was really cool. Have you been here? I should have put a picture of it. Have you seen the Biltmore Estate? This giant castle out in Asheville, North Carolina. It is huge. It's the largest family home in America. It's a castle, 250 rooms furnished with some of the most beautiful and rare antiques that you can find. It was built by one of the most highly esteemed architects of the day. The landscaping was laid out by this super, uh, super popular landscaping guy, the same guy who designed uh, Central Park in New York City. I mean, imagine that. You got the guy like down the road mowing your grass, the, like the 12-year-old. You got the guy that's, that's designing Central Park, is, is planting trees for them. Okay, this place is impressive, and I'm walking around with my kids and my wife. We're just like the whole time like, whoa, just the scale of it. And they're like, this particular window was inspired by French architect Jean-Claude Flamfoire. And we uh, imported this glass from, you know, Paris, the, 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 the glass maker. Who, yeah. It's impressive. It's amazing. And that's just the front door. The things that impress us don't impress God. I can see God looking down at the Biltmore Castle saying, eh, I seem bigger. <laughs> No big deal. He's been to the other side of the universe. He set the stars into motion. He makes sure everything works in conjunction with everything else so that life happens. The things that impress us do not impress God. Therefore, his politics are completely upside down from what our politics are. The Christmas story teaches us how God views position. Mary was the most unlikely surrogate for the living God. Yet God fills her supernaturally and uses her to change the world and my life and many of your lives that's the politics of Jesus and when you look at the life of Jesus you see this a lot I mean we see it all through his, his ministry when you look at the people that Jesus spent his time with we see the politics of God are not about power and prestige and position and possession it's about something else it's something that we consistently see with Jesus we saw it in the choosing of a modest girl named Mary. We also see it in the way that Jesus' birth is announced to the world. I want to take a look at another section. It's also going to be in the book of Luke, this time chapter 2. We're going to be starting at verse 8. This is the birth announcement of Jesus, and I'll just go into it. You probably have heard it. And there were shepherds living in fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Because I bring you good news, and it's going to cause great joy for all the people. Because today, in the town of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior has been born. He's the Messiah. The word Messiah is the chosen one of God, the anointed one to come and bring God's message to people. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host, these are angels, appeared with, with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, for, I think they left out this first phrase that the shepherds probably said, which was something kind of like, whoa. <laughs> like that's, I'm just guessing that was their first response to the angel choir. And then once they got their wits together, they said, well, let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. Some of you guys are parents. I talk about my kids all the time. Sorry, it's kind of what I do right now. 
And I remember when my son was born, our first child, and we had a plan on how we were going to announce it to the world. This is before Facebook. Uh, now, as soon as your kid's born, like everyone in the world knows, and it's instant. Uh, but this was just slightly before Facebook, and so we had, I had this really super high-tech uh, Motorola Razor. Remember the flip phone? And the plan was I had already created a text group message, a list of texts that we were going to send out to an elite group of people. Let me tell you, these people were special, okay? Our parents, our siblings, and a few of our best friends. That's how it works, right? Silas is born. Simultaneously, the most beautiful and most disgusting moment of my life. <laughs> Silas is born. After we get him all washed up, click a picture, shoot it out. Huzzah! The son is born, right? It was a big deal. I mean, the people that you announce your child's birth to, that's a special, that's a special deal. I mean, think about that. Have you ever been on the receiving end of one of those phone calls? I have. Or one, like a couple months ago, my buddy called me, and we're really good friends from college, and he called me and he said, look, I, I gotta tell you something, but you can't tell anyone else. Now, when someone says that to you, they're either in really big trouble <laughs> or it's really good news. And so I said, yeah, 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 I won't tell anybody else. And he says, we're gonna have another baby, which is really awesome. And don't tell anyone else. And to, to have that knowledge, you're just like, oh, I'm special. Kind of walking a little taller. Jesus. God in the flesh, the Son of God is coming to the planet as a human being. Who do they tell first? Kings, emperor, priests, Jewish religious leaders? None of that. Shepherds. Shepherds. Shepherds weren't royalty. They weren't politically prominent. They, they were hardworking laborers, and actually in society, they were kind of on the very bottom of the totem pole. Because as a result of their job, they spent a lot of time traveling, taking their sheep to pasture. So they didn't ever really have a whole lot of time to plug in socially. It's interesting, when you look back through the history of the Bible, all the major people in the Old Testament were shepherds. You got, you got Abraham and Moses, and these major, major players, they're shepherds. But by the time the Jews come back from their exile in Babylon, the position of shepherd had been relegated to a dirty task force. And those people don't get a lot of prominence. It's, it was historically, uh, not histor it is historically documented, but it was culturally understood that at this time, shepherds weren't to be trusted. In fact, if you were a shepherd, your testimony in a court of law was not acceptable because people just assumed that you weren't trustworthy. That's a shepherd. Not to mention that what they did many times left them ceremonially unclean so that they couldn't actually go into the temple and do some of the things that the other Jewish people were able to do for worship. And God's got the biggest announcement of the millennia. And he pulls the angel choir together. And I can just imagine this conversation. Hey, guys, got a big gig. We're going to go announce the son of God. He's going to be here. Who are we singing to? Shepherds. It's the politics of God. It's upside-down politics. His love isn't just for the people of prominence. It's for anyone who is ready to turn their life over in faith Jesus. And we've only looked at two parts of the Christmas story today. Actually, in, in reading through this and studying this, I really battled with which parts of the Christmas story to use because it could be used in several areas. Just the very fact that I said last week Jesus came as a human baby. He could have come as like a full-grown man or as like a general with a sword or something. He could have come as the internet. I don't know. But he chose to come as a human baby. The politics of God. And when you get right down to it, guys, the, the politics of God are politics of an upside-down kingdom. And that's what I want to spend our closing time together talking about. The upside-down kingdom of God. You remember when the angel announced to Mary 
that the son that was going to be born to her was going to sit on the throne of David and he was going to reign forever. It's the throne of a kingdom that Jesus would be the king of. And as Jesus went through his teaching time through the New Testament and we hear the things that he said to people, the things that he said were principles of an upside down kingdom. I want to share a couple of them with you this morning. Let's look at Matthew chapter 10 verse 39. This is another one of the books about Jesus' life. He says this crazy upside down backwards puzzling thing. He says, whoever finds their life will lose it. Take that in. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. It's like a Willy Wonka song. I mean, it's all inside out and backwards. The whole idea is that Jesus' kingdom is one that's not about getting rich. It's not about discovering and going and finding yourself. It's about finding Jesus. It's an upside down kingdom. It's the politics of God. Jesus says another thing in Mark 10, 31. He's got a bunch of these phrases. I'm just picking a couple this morning. Mark 10, 31, he says, but many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. It's an upside down kingdom. It's the politics of God. And again, it seems upside down by human standards, but Jesus isn't looking for the biggest or the strongest or the wealthiest or the most prominent. He's looking for those who are willing to humble themselves before a king. He's looking for the faithful. He's looking for worship. And there are many more places where Jesus teaches this whole upside down kingdom principle, but there is one that I think highlights how that connects with the Christmas story. I'm gonna use another one of these. It's gonna be in Mark 10, 43. Uh, we won't look at it on the screen just yet, but I, I wanna tell you, first of all, the most upside down part of the, the Jesus story, the most upside down thing about the politics of God, the craziest, most absurd part of it, and it starts with this, okay? I, I, I'm gonna step into a different realm. Sin, sin going against the things God has told us to do, not doing the thing, going against, not doing the things God has told us to do, doing the things God has told us not to do. Sorry, it took me a second to get out that phrase. Sin. Sin pulls us away from God. When we sin, we disobey. We willingly do the things that are against his character, against his standard, and the Bible teaches that all have sinned. And most importantly for us to understand that everyone who sins, the penalty for sin is death. Not immediate death. You're not like, oh, stole a candy bar, going to die. No, it's, it's spiritual death. God goes, look, you're not living up to my code. I'm perfect, and your sin has now tainted my, tainted my perfection, and I can't let you into my presence because we are no longer compatible because of your sin. The sad thing is that many of us, myself included, when we find this out, it actually doesn't change a whole lot about the way we act from day to day. We know that our sin separates us from God, yet we still are tempted enough to fall into it time and time again. The most upside down part of Jesus' kingdom is what he does about that. Because the penalty is punishment, the penalty is separation from God, spiritual death. And Jesus said, no, I've got another plan. And I'm gonna flip that upside down. Let's look at Mark 10, 43 through 45. He starts out with this, not so with you, He's kind of in the middle of a thought. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be servant of all. For example, even the Son of Man, that's a nickname for Jesus, for even Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve, listen to this last phrase, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The most upside down thing Jesus did 
was to show us the politics of God by coming as God in the flesh as a servant to mankind. Us who have turned him away and rejected him and intentionally done things that are not right. And even more, he lays down his own life as a payment for our debt. You ever had a family member who like is totally in debt, got the credit card company hounding them and everything, and they call you like, can I borrow $10,000? And you're like, uh, you dug this hole, maybe you should just bury yourself in it because I can't give you $10,000. That's where we are with God. And God goes, you got a debt? Ransom, the word ransom is a word that can mean payment. He said, I'll pay the ransom. I'll pay the penalty for your debt. It's the politics of God. It's the untold story of Christmas. It's the upside down kingdom where Jesus is the king. If you're just getting started in faith, Christianity, church, maybe you're here for the first time just with a friend or you've only come two or three times because you kind of heard something here that kind of piqued your interest but you just come back. It might be that everything I just said, it might be the first time that's ever been laid out for you. It might be that you're just being reminded of it for the first time and it's heavy. Make, make no mistake, the upside down story of God's kingdom, the untold story of Christmas is that Jesus came to forgive us of our sin and we need to stop sinning. We need to turn our back and repent on the things that we do that are against God so that we can focus on what matters most, so we can focus on a life lived in faith for Jesus. But Jesus wasn't willing to leave us up a creek. He said, I'm going to come down and set the example. I'm going to show you that this is doable. Uh, we see this all throughout Jesus' life. He loves us, and through Jesus, God is providing a way for having our sins forgiven. Like, I think about the time when Jesus met a woman. Uh, she's sitting at this well in a little city called Samaria. It was the middle of the day. All the other ladies have already come to draw, in their, wa draw their water, and Jesus finds her sitting on the well. And what we learn about her as we unpack the story there in the book of John is that she was a scorned lady. She had been married five times. The guy she was with right now, not even her husband. She had a bad reputation. The very fact that she was out on her own getting water tells us a lot about the idea that she wasn't popular among the other ladies, Jesus, a very respected teacher, walks up to her, a woman who socially was scorned and clearly an outsider, and he engages her in conversation. Unthinkable in that culture. Why would Jesus have even approached somebody? Maybe you've seen somebody downtown on the side of the road, and maybe for a second you kind of felt like turning your nose up at them a little bit because they looked a little bit dirty and a little bit homeless. And you thought, eh. and they probably deserve whatever they got. Well, maybe so, but I probably deserve a whole lot worse than what I'm blessed with. And Jesus sets the example and he says, let me tell you about the love of God. Let me tell you about me and what I've come to do for the world. That's Jesus setting the example of the upside down kingdoms. That's the politics of Jesus. Another time, uh, and this happened a couple different ways, but Jesus was approached by a man who had leprosy, terrible, incurable disease. It was considered that if you had leprosy, uh, they would ship you off to kind of a, a concentration camp on the outside of the city. You weren't allowed to go up next to anybody unless you ring a bell or bang some sticks together and scream, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I have leprosy. And this guy with leprosy, first of all, he has the audacity to walk up to Jesus, who is this respected man, and he says, Lord, if you're willing, I know you can make me clean. He's got faith in Jesus. Jesus doesn't push him away with the, with, the, with the toe of his sandal. He doesn't like quickly run so he doesn't get the cooties from this guy with leprosy. No, he's down his level. He offers the guy healing, but more than healing, Jesus loves this man in a way that he probably had not been loved in years. It's the politics of Jesus. It's the upside down kingdom in which Jesus is the king because Jesus sought the outcast. He sought the sinner. He sought the betrayed, the broken, the possessed. 
And Jesus specialized in mending the broken. What he wanted to do is show him, show them, and show us that his kingdom was not about the politics of men, but his kingdom was for everyone who would have faith and believe that he is the Son of God, and he is capable and able and has the authority to reunite us with the love of God. Where are you with Jesus right now? I just got to ask that question. It's, it's Christmas, and sometimes we have the, the notion of, eh, the reason for the season is Jesus. And so what that means to us is we put the gaudy nativity in our front yard with the spotlights from Lowe's. And, and like, we're like, Jesus, it's the reason for a season. I did it. I win. But like, for real, let me just ask you, from the bottom of my heart, as a friend, what's up with you and Jesus? Because he, he did this whole Christmas thing so that we could be connected with the love of God so that we could have our sins washed away and so that we could be purified and live a rich new life in him. Not rich in the eyes of human politics, but rich in faith, rich in joy, rich in love. What's up with you and Jesus? The last few nights I've been praying with our kids. We, we pray with our kids almost every night. and My daughter has started saying this really cool thing when she prays. She's five years old. And, uh, and it's really neat. Uh, she picked it up from her mom. I know they, they talk about it when they, when they do school. But um, her prayer has basically been, she prays about whatever's on her mind. And then she goes, and, and dear God, help me remember at Christmas that it's all about you. She's five years old. She picked that up. Now, I, I could go into a whole tangent about Jesus is the reason for the season. But as I think about the upside down kingdom of God, as I think about the untold story of Christmas and the politics of Jesus... There's something more that's in my daughter's prayer. I want to remind you, my daughter's five years old. In the grand scheme of things, she doesn't have a lot of position, power, possession. But the Almighty God hears her prayer. That means something, guys. When I was in college, I found this verse in the book of Hebrews, and it just rocked my world when I discovered it. The cool thing about the Bible, in fact, it's in the book of Hebrews, it says that the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than a double-edged sword, and, and that's kind of a metaphoric phrase, but I tell you what, when I've read through the Bible in my life, there's been times where it's like, it's like the page jumped out and grabbed my face and said, pay attention, this is for you, and this happened to me when I found this verse on my own one day in Hebrews chapter 4, it starts in verse 14, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Paul's there. This passage is about Jesus. It comes in a place in the book of Hebrews where the, the writer of the book of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to the Old Testament priests. These are the guys who would go to the temple and make the sacrifices to wash away the sins of the nation. That was kind of their role. If you don't know that, if you don't get that, it's okay. You don't have to know that because we're not Jewish. That's the Jewish law. But this meant a lot to people who understood that, man, there was a time when it was... It was very complex of an ordeal to go and have your sins forgiven by the priest. Big deal. Jesus comes in, and this guy compares Jesus as the new high priest. And it's sometimes when we think about Jesus, we're like, well, of course Jesus gets it. Like, he's Jesus, he's God, he's seen everything that we do. And so, I mean, I mean, he, he knows us, but how could he possibly relate with us? Because he's God. That's why Jesus became a baby and lived a life on the earth because this phrase in Hebrews chapter 4 says that this high priest Jesus was tempted in every way guys remember when you were uh, 12 years old and that first 
perverted thought came into your mind? I don't know if it came from a magazine you found in your dad's room or something, some kid. I, I learned about everything that I shouldn't have learned about on a school bus on the way to a field trip. It scares the mess out of me because I have children. Remember that? Ladies, you remember the first time that your mind just kind of went a different place? You remember how hard it's been since that day to kind of keep your life on track? And it might not have been something like what I'm inferring, but it, it could be in any number of things. Jesus was 12 years old once. In fact, Jesus grew up as a poor guy in a place where I'm sure he wanted for things. Jesus went through the struggles of growing up and then in the peak of his ministry was called all kinds of terrible names and people doubted his genuineness and his authenticity. You think Jesus was ever tempted to just be like, shut up, I'm gonna strike you with lightning, zap. Sure. Our high priest was tempted in every way but yet did not sin. And what that allows us, guys, is a perfect sacrifice that can really make up for the debt that we owe. And this last uh, sentence takes me back to praying with my daughter. Therefore, this is what it says. It says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. In this upside down kingdom, where Jesus has lived his life perfectly, he's given his life as a sacrifice for mankind, he defeats death and rises from the grave, and then he seats on the throne for all eternity and rules everything under his feet. Would we have the audacity to go, knock, 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 dear God, I have a prayer request. Dear God, there's something on my heart. And God says, come on in, child. I'm listening. Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's what my daughter was doing. She, she didn't know she was doing that. She learned that from mom and dad. We pray. She's like, oh, we pray. We talk to the invisible thing. We just talk. But as you guys are learning more and more about faith, approach God with confidence. The untold story of Christmas is a story of God's politics, but you know what that means for you? It means that an untold story of Christmas is that Christmas is about the opportunity you and I have to connect with the living God. And if you haven't done that, if you haven't said, man, I am all in, Jesus, like with everything, with everything I am, I'm all in. And even when I mess up, I'm going to step back and go, my bad, God, can we please try again? I encourage you today, don't be scared, don't be timid. The gift is wrapped, it's sitting under the tree, and God says, approach my throne of grace, my upside-down kingdom throne in confidence. Let me pray. God, we love you, and we praise you for the ability we have to approach your throne of grace. If I'm honest, I just sometimes feel too <laughs> guilty to pray like I should, to have faith in you like I should. And other times, I know I take advantage of your grace. I think we all have that tendency. But this morning, as we approach this Christmas season and we look forward to all the great festivities, Lord, the 
the parades that have been had and the, 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 the parties and the, the traveling and the family and, and the gifts, all that's well and good. And I love that your, your word says that every good and perfect gift is from, from above. So thank you for those, those gifts and those things we can enjoy. But Lord, may we never lose sight of the step you took <laughs> to throw down your politics, to show us your upside down kingdom. Lord, may we worship at the throne, at the feet of the king this Christmas season. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.